Bonjour and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. After four years, 175 episodes recorded, 9,625 minutes of no-bullshit content published, and 1 million plus downloads reached, I felt it was time to shake things up a bit. You see... I want to help you radically stand out because I firmly believe it's the only way for you to succeed without marketing bullshit. So moving forward, each episode is going to be around 20 minutes long. Each episode is going to be super practical where I'm going to teach you one way to radically stand out that you can apply to your business today. I'm going to use snippets of past interviews, the lessons I've learned from my own experience and plenty of concrete examples. Oh, and one last thing. I'm also turning each of those episodes into the only newsletter focusing on differentiation and positioning so you can read at your own pace and remember the concept I'm teaching. If it's of interest, I hope you'll sign up today on everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'll also notify you when I launch new stuff and products and you can win rewards for referring other mavericks to the newsletter, like branded cups and t-shirts and posters and private group coaching and plenty of other nice little surprises. All right, on to the podcast. Broadway theater, simply known as Broadway, is an area of New York City with 41 professional theaters, each with more or less 500 seats. And it's probably one of the most cluttered market on the entire planet. In the season 2018 to 2019, more than 14.7 million people attended the show at Broadway. Broadway show producer and two-time Tony Award winning Ken Davenport is known for his ways to make people pay attention to his shows. You might have heard of Kinky Boots, Groundhog Day, Once on this Island. He has a knack to understand how to cut through the cluttered market that is Broadway. And this is an example of it. It was a show called My First Time, which is about exactly what you think it's about. It was a vagina monologues-esque evening, four actors, two men, two women, telling true stories about their first sexual experiences. So it was user-generated content. So I optioned a website called myfirsttime.com I culled through like 40,000 stories that were anonymously submitted, a lot of late night reading, and put. I wrote a play based on these stories, monologues, snippets, also funny stories, sad stories, tragic stories, like everything you could imagine. Because first sexual experiences are one of the few things that almost every single person on this planet has in common, right, when you think about it except some monks somewhere, you know, almost everybody is doing it, but at the same time, rarely talking about it. And that's actually what I believe makes for great theater or great conversation and great marketing, right? It's something that everyone's got going on in their head. We share it in common, but no one's talking about. So what a great drama does is open up the doors for that conversation to happen because we're all curious about it. How was theirs? Oh, mine was awful. This and that. So when I was writing the play, and this is, this is the most important part of my formula for creating marketing stunts, if you will, is that I remember thinking, like, you know who should see this? Virgins should see this show. Because 
that is the most important audience for me because I wanted to demystify the experience in a way because as I was writing it, I realized there were some awful statistics. A very high percentage of people losing their virginity when they were drunk or under the influence of drugs. Like a lot of things that were like, this is not good. And what we need to do is educate. And the best way to educate, I believe, is through entertainment, right? Because it's like what I call the spoonful of sugar approach. People don't realize they're getting uh, taught something because they're being entertained at the same time. So I remember thinking, oh, you know, this will be wonderful if I can get teenagers to come with their parents and it'll be great. So flash forward six months later and I'm about to open the show and I'm trying to increase awareness, right? Because this is the biggest problem for anyone, doesn't matter what your product is or what your business is. If you're entering a market, especially a competitive market, your biggest problem is awareness because it doesn't matter how good your product is. If, they're, if it's cluttered, and Broadway is the most cluttered market on the planet, if it's cluttered, you're never going to compete with the big boys that are going to outspend you. They've been around for 10, 20 years. Like, forget it. It's like trying to introduce a new soft drink. Like, forget it. It's way hard. So what you need to do is something big, right, to get attention without spending money. Because once again, anyone that says, oh, I'm going to start a new product and I'm just going to try to go up against, well, razors are the perfect example. I'm going to go up against Gillette or I'm going to go against Bic. No, that's not what Dollar Shave Club did. They didn't try to outspend them, right? They tried to underspend them actually. And that's how they created the market share that they did. So I take the same, the same idea. And I remember thinking, okay, I need to do something big. Well, what's my mission for the show? My mission is to get virgins to see it. So why don't I let virgins come in free for the first performance? So that seemed like an interesting idea to me and to a lot of people. Uh, and then I was like, it's not enough. And then what usually people, when I tell people that story, they usually say, but how, did, how could you tell if they were a virgin or not? So I hired a human lie detector. A someone with a PhD in nonverbal communication, reading body language, handwriting analysis, the whole bit. And I put him at the front of the line at the box office to ask questions. Where are you from? How old are you? Put, write your name. And he could tell if people were a virgin or not based on this little question. So <laughs> the funny thing is that as you can imagine, that story blew up. So it took about three days, but the Associated Press picked up on the press release and sent it worldwide. And that's when it started to appear on the homepage of CNN, every TMZ, you name it. So not only is Ken Davenport directly competing against 41 theaters inside Broadway, but he's also competing against other theater of Broadway. All of them are also trying to advertise, also trying to to capture the attention of tourists and, and, and the locals trying to be noticed, trying to be remembered. But beyond these direct competitors, he's also competing against alternatives for entertainment, right? There's a lot to do in New York City itself. There is more than 300 cinemas, more than 100 museums, 26,697 restaurants, and more and more alternatives. And all of them have budgets as well to compete. All of them have ways to cater for the attention of uh, people who might go to Broadway, but also might go somewhere else. Because remember, theaters 
also compete uh, with alternatives, not just other theaters. But beyond those alternatives, Ken Davenport is also competing against alternatives such as Netflix or DVDs or the internet or Reddit or YouTube. He's also competing against any other ways for people to be entertained. And so that goes beyond the direct competitors, that goes beyond competitive alternatives, and that goes beyond the tangential competitive alternatives you can think about. But then beyond those, what Ken Davenport is competing against and what we are all competing against are the worries and the concerns of people we seek to serve. Because frankly, they have other stuff to think about than just entertainment and have other stuff to think about than our brand. In fact, in a 2020 uh, study amongst more than uh, 20,000 adults in 27 countries, the top worries of the world was the coronavirus, 55%, unemployment, 42%, poverty and social inequality, 31%, healthcare, 25%, and then financial political corruption, 24%. People have other stuff to worry about, and they have very, 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 very little time to think about your brand. In one word, Ken Davenport, just like us, is competing against clutter. In fact, Martin Neumeyer, in his book Zag, says that the real competition is clutter. And he then goes on to say, we not only live in a world of faster, we live in a world of more. Traditional marketing strategies tend to frame the competition in terms of other offerings in the same category, for example, other sports cars. When they think outside the box, they may even include offerings in tangent categories, for example, sporty sedans and motorcycles. But today's real competition, competition that's so pervasive we can't even see it, doesn't come from direct or even indirect competitors. It comes from the extreme clutter of the marketplace. So how do humans cope with that extreme clutter? Well, Baron Sharp in his book, How Brands Grow, says the following. People basically satisfy, which is a term coined by Herbert Simon in 1957, which is a mix of satisfaction and suffice. We settle for something that we consider good or satisfactory instead of working hard to find the best product for us. Buyers, in effect, decide not to consider the vast, vast, vast majority of brands in the market. And, you know, when we picture our marketing plan, we, we do our market research, we tend to picture customers to really like, carefully consider all the competitors in a specific category and creating an Excel spreadsheet, comparing them for all of their features. But that's not at all how we buy. Evaluation is way less important than we all think. What buyers remember about brands really varies across buying occasions, right? You, you don't think about a brand uh, the same way when you're driving uh, across the country and eat, and eat food fast compared to when you are having a date uh, with your significant other and you want to find a good restaurant. A buyer considers only a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of the brands they actually know. That's called the consideration set. And so the way we deal with clutter is, especially when we are pressed for time, when we're tired, when we don't care, we drastically restrict our consideration set down to a very few favorite brands. There is a study that was done by Barron across retail banking as a category that found that 73% of people looking for a new bank considered only one bank. 17% considered two, 6% three, 2% four. 
That is outstanding. The average of brands considered were only 1.4. Now, you might argue that's, that's maybe a specific category, but a study in France, actually, uh, amongst 1,800 new car buyers showed that 22% consider only one brand, but 48% bought the same brand as before. And in this sense, this is why brands are actually extremely useful. It creates this frame of reference for people so that they can take uh, decisions without spending days picking the right play uh, to, to watch the right Netflix movie, uh, the right car, etc., etc. So as marketers, the traditional way to deal with that is by doing more, right? And Martin Neumeyer classified clutter in five forms. Product clutter, we create many uh, products or services. Feature clutter, we add too many features in each product. Advertising clutter, we had too many media message inside each ad. Message clutter, we had too many elements per message. And then media clutter, too many competing channels. So it's all about more features, more channels, more message, more elements, more segments to go after, more products to create, more categories. It's like trying to play bowling with a bucket full of tennis balls. It's like trying to do too many things at once, trying to play in too many uh, in different areas and, and basically trying to knock down a heavy bowling pin with light tennis balls. It's not because you'll throw 100 tennis balls at that bowling pin that it's actually going to fall. It might be too heavy. And it's the same for us when it comes to clutter. Do not add to the clutter. And sure, you might feel like you're producing something with those tennis balls, but the bowling pins, basically the market you want to reach, is too heavy to be knocked over. So notice what Ken Davenport mentioned at the start uh, in his story, the way he created buzz around his play. He spent and poured all of his energy on one core thing, not 100, not 10, one core thing, because he knew he didn't have the resources to compete against all of the other alternatives and direct competitor. And just like you, you have a limited amount of resources you can invest. And the wrong solution will be to try to go everywhere, to be on every channel, to develop many messages to, towards many different types of personas or segments. Well, in fact, your number one goal should be to be noticed. Once you're noticed, to be understood. Once you're understood, to be thought about in buying situation. And when you're being thought about in buying situation, to be shared with others, people, to share experience with people like them. And so to continue the barling analogy, you should instead pour all of your energy to build a bowling ball, basically the combination of all your efforts to knock over this one pin, which is the right segment, the right people, and the rest will follow. How do you fight clutter? How do you create, construct this bowling ball and to put all of this, this energy into? Well, the first thing to do is to identify one underserved segment. I've talked about that in the episode Buyer Personas Needs to Die of a Violent Death in one very specific category. I've talked about that in Give Me a Large Swimming Pool and I'll Grow Your Market Share, which is a recent episode. So one underserved segment in one specific category that you can really own, offering one specific value, meaning you lead with one, the core pain you want to solve, the core desire you want to help them reach, the core job to be done. Not two, not three, one. Your aim is to keep the product super sharp so you keep direct competitors to a minimum, which is step two, obsessing over creating a very sharp product. The more specific the segment you're after, the more specific the value you provide, the more specific the category you're in, the more you can spend time and energy developing a product or service that will help them 
that will serve them. And the more they will talk about it with people like them, the more you'll be able to aim at that bowling pin, right? Because you can really, really obsess over it. Once you have that, step three is to be noticed with one single core message. And in fact, the more messages you try to blast, the less any of them will be communicated. Let me repeat that for you. The more messages you're going to try to blast and communicate, the less any of them will be communicated. In fact, a study done by Millward Brown show that when you communicate one message, 100% uh, of it is, is properly communicated. When you share two messages at once, you have 65% chance that either of them will be communicated. If you share three messages at once, 62%, four messages, 43%. So think about those tennis balls again. You can see that you pour all of your energy in creating many different tennis balls instead of creating a bigger one that have way more chance to be communicated. Another thing to prove that the one single message is so important, the Miller law dictates that the number of bits any human can hold in their working memory is around five to nine single items, like small words, small ideas. And they can hold that for only 10 to 15 seconds. So be very wary about that. Do share one thing at a time, the one main thing you want to lead on, and you'll have a much higher likelihood of being communicated properly to the right people. Step four is then is to be remembered with one differentiated message. So not only it's one message, but it needs to be differentiated. It needs to be different from the other message, the other thing that people tend to be exposed to. Because the more differentiated, the more chances you have to be also noticed. So my advice here will be to really list down what is being done in the category that you are in, but also in alternatives that are reaching your market and try to see, trying to look for gaps, trying to see, to see things that you can do slightly differently. There are two psychological principles you can really lie on for this. The first one is by psychologist Hedwig von Restoff that showed that distinctiveness drives memorability. And that gave the name to the von Restoff effect or also called the distinctiveness effect which predicts that when multiple similar things are presented, the one that differs from the rest is more likely to be remembered. And that's critical. Now, it might seem very obvious, right? If you do something completely different than the rest, you're more likely to remember it, but it's also proven scientifically. There is also another bias that you might have heard about called the bizarreness effect, which predicts that incongruent or surprising things are more memorable than expected and common ones because they are more distinctive. So researchers from the University of California measure the brain activity of respondents who, whilst wearing EEG caps, which are basically, you know, the caps that connected all those wires, read a series of sentences of which some contain semantically incongruous words like turtles are not as smart as mammals, like socks or dogs. The data showed a large spike in brain activity when participants read the incongruous word in a sentence suggesting these words resulted in a significant degree of involuntary attention and processing. So in other words, the more different, the more out there your message, the more likely it will also be remembered. Step five is also to find this one channel where you can really have a competitive advantage to heighten the chances. Dave Gehart, ex-VP of marketing at Drift and now his VP of marketing at Privy, talked about that in the podcast a while back. Who are your dream 100 customers? So where do they hang out? So where are the my dream 100 customers that I want to buy my hoodies? Where do they hang out? In person and online. And I just make a whole list. 
They go to these conferences, they read these blogs, they listen to these podcasts, they listen to these people, these influencers, these people in the market. They typically live in these areas. Then that's one thing, okay? So that would start to give me a list of like channels that might be interesting. Maybe this group doesn't actually care about podcasts at all, but they're huge on YouTube, okay? We're starting to limit, we're starting to narrow down the channels that I would focus on. Then I would go and look at the competitors in that industry who's already making hooded sweatshirts. How do they go to market? Oh, they're running, they're running ads. What keywords are they using? Okay, what content are they creating? Oh, really? Interesting. Nobody in this industry has a podcast? Okay, then that's a huge gap. That might be an area. So I'm always trying to find the gaps because everybody's doing the same things in marketing. And so for me, it's really about finding the channels that I could have a competitive advantage on um, by being the first person there. And so maybe that's the everybody has a podcast, but nobody has a podcast in your industry. I'd start the first podcast in that industry. Nobody's vlogging or creating video content in the industry. I would do that. Nobody's running ads. Maybe you start Googling stuff and there's no you know, search, uh, search terms being bid on on AdWords. Like it's all about finding those opportunities first and then you can start to get creative and figure out how you're gonna stand out in those channels. Then step six is to really try to develop a specific set of distinctive brand assets and never change them. So it's easier to build memory structures in people's mind. Remember, you want people to know who you are, to remember you, to associate you with the right buying situations. And the key there is to really never, never, never change them. We have a tendency to change our logo and colors every two years, every year and a half, because we get sick of them. But it's not up to you to decide whether uh, you are sick of it. You see that every day, all day. Remember, those people have other things to worry about than your brand. They have other concerns that are much, much bigger than the competitions or other categories. And you can play across multiple sets of distinctive brand assets across color, word, stories, human faces, music, or shape. Step seven is to show up consistently for months and months with that single bowling ball so that you can create and refresh memory structures in your underserved segment's mind. It's all about doubling down on it. You've done your research, you've done your diagnosis, you know who to go after. Go all in with that single bowling ball. And yes, sure, after a while you might go, uh, uh, you, you might give another go, just like in bowling, to try to have all of those pins falling down. And then once you have that, of course, of course, you can open up to more products or services. You can upsell and expand your services. See it as a kind of a, an iceberg where the tip of the iceberg is what you communicate with that bowling ball. And the rest is what you can give once people have started to pay attention to you. Once they've started to sign up to the newsletter, listen to your podcast uh, and bought your first product. But don't try to share all of those tennis balls at once or else it might, it's, it's not going to work out. And finally, just to close that loop and to close the argument on how to really deal with clutter and how to cut through the noise, a little mathematical kind of small exercise, right? Let's consider the six dimensions I mentioned. Uh, the segment that you're after, the category you're in, the value you provide them, the message that you share, the channel that you're in, and the assets uh, that you reach. And it's imagine that you, know, you have a limited uh, amount of resources in front of you. And so you choose the first uh, approach, which is trying to like, do everything everywhere. And let's consider that each of those uh, assets are worth 0.5, right? Because you couldn't give it all, you couldn't give it uh, a, a one purely because you have other stuff to do. If you multiply 0.5 by 0.5 six times, you obtain 0.015, which is a very tiny number, right? And that means that for every 
poor segment of users and, and every poor category and, and the value that is not so good and the message that is not so good, the channels is not so good. You're losing kind of momentum, you're losing the power of the compounding power of really creating this one single bowling ball. Instead, if you were to do that and really obsess over one segment, really obsess over one category, one value, one message, and really going all in based on your research, multiplying one by one times six, right? One by one times 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 one by one, you would actually get 1.77. And the difference between the new number is a magnitude of 113. 113 times more powerful. The more you focus your attention on each thing, the more the compounding effect of each thing will work out because you have limited resources, because you can bring everyone together to focus on that segment, on that category, on that value, on that message, the more you can really double down on it. So to summarize, your biggest competitor is clutter. It's not just direct competitors or alternatives. It's everything that people have on their minds. And the knee-jerk reaction would be to throw many tennis balls to knock over that pin, but it will be counterproductive, as I showed you. The more messages you try to share, the less effective. The more segments, the less focus you'll be. The more channels, the less resources you have to spend on, etc., etc. Instead, try to focus on one sharp product, focused on one underserved segment with one clearly differentiated message in one very specific channel and show up consistently and consistently until you have the resources uh, to do more, just like Ken Davenport did. And then sure, after that, you can open up on the other side. Picture it as an iceberg where you share the tip of it because people don't have a lot of time. You can really like focus on one thing. And then once you have them, once they remember you, you can open it up on the other side. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm pouring my heart and soul into this. Uh, it will mean a lot to me if you check out the newsletter that goes with this podcast at everyonehatesmarketers.com. I send this newsletter every Tuesday. It's packed with very practical, step-by-step, -step, actionable ways for you to radically stand out. And when you sign up, you also get access to a free eight-lesson course on the same topic. All right, see you on the other side. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. 
See you on the other side. 